Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. I always feel served well when the sermon is basically preached before I step up here. So uh, I hope that you were as filled as I was uh, by that time of worship, that scripture reading. Thank you, Sean, and thank you, Kenyon, for that. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, If you're new here, as I've seen many new faces the last couple of weeks, my name is Tyler. I'm the associate pastor here, uh, so I serve on the team in that way. Our lead pastor, Jim, is out of town this morning, spending some time with his son, Timothy, and with his wife, Stacy. So they will be back next week, but this week they're out of town, and I thank you for joining us As we continue our series through the Great Commission, looking at it through different lenses, sort of holding up the Great Commission as a diamond, turning it around, and taking a couple of different angles look at it. Now, it should be uh, pointed out, for those of you that are new, this is not the normal way in uh, in which we preach or teach on a Sunday morning. Generally speaking, we, take, we like to preach through books of the Bible or large chunks of Scripture, taking successive texts. So we did, uh, last year we looked at First uh, and Second Peter, or I should say not last year, but in the 14 months since I've been here, we've looked at First and Second Peter, we looked at the book of Esther, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. In the future, in this year, we'll be looking at uh, the letter of First John, the first epistle of John. And so what we normally do is we take that chunk of Scripture and we work through it slowly, Uh, understanding it, explaining it, and applying it to our lives. That's called expositional preaching. It's our normal diet, but also when we gather on occasion, we take a topic that we believe is important either in our particular local church at a particular time and season, or is important in the broader Christian culture, what's taking place in our country amongst the churches, or uh, that helps us understand something going on in terms of Uh, what is happening in broader secular culture outside of the church, maybe something important happening culturally, socially, or politically in our country. And so normally we're in particular texts of Scripture. If you want to know why we do that, uh, you can either ask me afterwards, or if you're new with us, you can grab our Trailhead 2 booklet, our membership booklet, in the back, and you can join us the last Wednesday of this month, first Wednesday of next month for our membership class. In that class, we walk through our theology, our philosophy, and our various uh, ministry methodologies to give people an understanding of what we believe, who we are, and why we do what we do here. So if you want to hear more about that, feel free to do either of those. Uh, but this sermon, we, or, yeah, this sermon, we are in a series looking at the sermon, or sorry, looking at the Great Commission, And it's topical, so it moves in a slightly different way. And the purpose for this is we think in this season of Journey Church, it is important to think about why it is that we exist. What is the mission God gave the church? Now, the reason for that uh, is that in particular, there seems to be a uh, strategic openness now amongst all communities, age groups, uh, various social economic groups, but we have noticed as we've looked at different things culturally uh, in our particular area geographically, but also nationally, that there is a new openness to the gospel, a new spiritual openness. And we here at Journey Church want to be reminded that we are on mission, uh, a mission that we were given by our head and also our God and King, Jesus Christ, in order to take the gospel to others. And so, While we might not be aware of why particularly 
Uh, this new openness has come about. While we don't necessarily know, and we'll have to wait to see the historical and the social reasons, the cultural reasons why people are more open now than they were, say, a few years ago, what we do know is statistically we are seeing a harvest come. And we here at Journey Church want to be prepared uh, to understand, to uh, work with, and to be useful tools in the instrument of our God as that harvest comes. So this week we're turning our attention back to the Great Commission, back to the mission of the church, thinking about why God calls us together. And in particular, this morning we are looking at why God has been doing this, or what God has been doing from his very uh, the very inception of his plan to save sinners. And so we are going to be connecting this morning the Great Commission to the Abrahamic Covenant in the Old Testament. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 12 momentarily. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. But just to make sure we get some uh, definitions down, because it's important, it's imperative that we're on the same page this morning, let me define the terms covenant, and let me talk about what the Great Commission is. I don't want to assume that we all know that. So a covenant, an easy definition, is a covenant is an agreement that creates a sacred kinship or relational bond between two parties and has legal obligations. And you may have even heard that when our friend Sean read the scripture passage from Romans chapter 4 for us this morning. You may have heard the concept of covenant, a legal bond that brings together two parties with various obligations. Now today we might consider or compare a covenant to agreements like marriage, or even adoption. And so thinking through those, both of those agreements are public agreements that are both deeply, deeply relational and yet have some aspect of legal obligation attached to them. And so they're public, legal, and relational commitments. Now the Great Commission, on the other hand, is the mission Jesus gave his church after his crucifixion and resurrection before he ascended back to the Father. And while we see the Great Commission laid out in the Gospel of John, where uh, Pastor Jim preached from last week. We also see the Great Commission in the second part of the Apostle Luke's work, which is called the Book of Acts, in Acts uh, chapter 1. The most common citation for it is Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, defines our mission this way. And Jesus came and said to them, that's his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My task this morning, like I said, is to connect those two concepts together, the concept of covenant and that mission that we have been given. The mission that we are on because of the sending of God's people into the world to spread the word of God's reconciling love. That has been his plan from the very beginning. So let's pray this morning, and then we'll jump into a few texts in the book of Genesis. Father in heaven, we are gathered here to worship you. In fact, we exist to worship you. You have purchased us with the blood of Jesus Christ. You have created us in your image, and you desire for us to enter into right relationship with you to offer worship in spirit and in truth. To that end, we have sung, we have heard the scriptures read, and now we set our hearts and our minds to think and to consider and to reflect on your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us maintain focus and clarity this morning. 
We ask that you would grant us that the thoughts of our minds and our hearts would be honoring in your sight, that the words of my mouth would be edifying and encouraging and clarifying to your people whom you've gathered here. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and covenant head. Amen. Well, friends, we have a lot before us this morning, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12. But in order to really uh, understand, the reason why we're in Genesis chapter 12 is in order to understand the covenant, we have to see it unpacked for us. Now, unfortunately, for those of us who want an easy answer to things like the covenant of God, there is no individual passage that just lays it out. So we're going to look at a few verses in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 18. Just a few verses in each, but we'll be progressing through there. In order to understand, though, what we're doing, we have to know the rest of the story leading up to Genesis chapter 12. And so we need to, we need to understand what is happening from the very beginning. And I think it's important, it's imperative to say that the first thing we need to understand about covenant is that the Bible teaches us that covenant is actually the natural state of all mankind. That what I mean by that is to be made in the image of God is to be created in a covenant relationship with him. The only question then for us becomes, do we exist in a fractured and broken, rebellious covenant, or do we exist in a holy holistic and wholesome one? Do we exist in a whole and wholesome covenant or harmonious covenant or a broken and rebellious one? You see, if we had kept on reading in Romans, we would have come across Romans chapter 5 and in verses 12 through 15, Paul lets us know that this is our state. In Romans 12 uh, through 15 and 19, 18 and 19, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, grace, have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And in verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all of men. For as by one, man diso uh, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I think that passage strikes a little, a little funny in our ears because we, in our culture, are individualists. And so we don't like the concept that both Romans 4 and Romans 5 are laying out. But what they tell us is that ultimately we have a decision between two covenant heads, but all of us exist in covenant. And so one covenant head, one covenant representative is Adam. And Adam sinned, and thus, if we follow him, our lives will be infected with sin in every part. That's not to say that there can be no good that we can do in a human sense, but rather that we cannot do good in a pure and unmarred sense that is pleasing to God. Now, if, the, if he is one covenant representative, the other covenant representative is Jesus, who did not sin, yet was killed for our sins. Thus, if we follow Jesus, we are freed from our sin. Again, not to the point where we do not sin in this earthly life, but rather 
that the Spirit of Christ, who we call the Holy Spirit, is at work in us to, as we struggle with sin throughout each successive day of our life, he is rooting out our sin, bringing it into the light, and exposing it to Christ, God through Christ's love for us and our love for Christ, and thus in those two things, killing the sin. And so in covenant with Christ, then, we are freed from sin, we are set free, and we can pursue and please God. We can live as we were always intended to be. But that being said, I'm getting ahead of myself. I've gotten to the end of the sermon before I've actually even really started the sermon. So let's back up. Genesis chapter 12. Uh, actually, let me do one more thing before I get there, because before we understand Genesis chapter 12, we have to understand what took place in the preceding 11 chapters, right? One of the benefits of teaching expositionally is that we can build the context over time, but we're just parachuting into Genesis chapter 12. So really quick, here is the highlights leading up to chapter 12. In the beginning was God. No argument for God's existence, just a simple statement that God existed. And he created all things for him, for his glory. And in doing so, he created them that if they honor him, that is their natural and intended state, so they will flourish. This is why for centuries, Christians have confessed this truth, that the chief end of man, which is to say the reason why he exists, the purpose for his creation, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and ever. If we do those things, if we glorify God and enjoy him, then what we find is we exist as we were intended, and thus we exist in a state of flourishing. However, that state did not last very long for original humanity. Rather, the fall took place. The fall is when creation rebelled against God, particularly in the form of the covenant representative of Adam resisting what God had told him to do. He gave in to temptation. That temptation came through God's enemy, who, by the way, is not, like God, an eternal, all-powerful being, but is rather a created and rebellious one. We call him Satan or the devil, uh, he goes by other nicknames throughout scripture, like the dragon or the serpent, but this devil, Satan, serpent, snuck into the garden, deceived Adam, and he sinned. And in his rebellion, sin and death entered the world. The covenant with God was broken. And so humanity experienced a fractured relationship with God, no longer the relationship that we were designed for, intended for, and created to flourish in. And so this is crucial, because if we are going to understand covenant, if we are going to understand the church's mission, we must understand God's holiness. If we don't first embrace God's holy character, we will not understand covenant, nor can we understand the mission of the church. And critical to understanding our relationship with God is this, that the holy character of God cannot be endured by sinful creation. That God's holiness is unendurable for us in a sinful state, for sinful creatures. And so Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they rebelled against God, they actually should have died. This is what God tells us, that when they eat of the tree that was forbidden from them, when they eat of the fruit that was forbidden from them, they should have experienced death. And they did in one way. But, rather than experiencing instantaneous death, God cast man and woman, he cast humanity out of his presence. 
God is everywhere, but in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt there in a specific, unique, and intense way. And when man sinned against God, he was cast out of the garden. And that is both an act of curse and judgment and an act of blessing. It's an act of curse and judgment because we were designed to be in God's presence, and ultimately the Bible ends with us entering back into his presence. And so being apart for the rest of creation from God in the way in which we were intended to be is actually an experience of God's curse and judgment upon sin. But it is a blessing in this way. Had we remained in the presence of a holy God, we would have died. And so God cast man out of his presence in order to sustain man, to redeem man, and to call man back to him. And so we see in the book of Genesis, the development of the concept of what God is going to do is he blesses and redeems man and renews that relationship. And that's what's starting in Genesis chapter 12. In verses 1 through 3, you can look with me there. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from the country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's a lot to unpack here but I want to notice this first and foremost that God's plan to restore relationship with humanity involves a call to go. Abraham is called to go. And if we were to take that language and we were to recapitulate it in a New Testament context, we could say Abraham is called to go. He is saved to be sent. He is sent to a place. And in doing so, he must forsake all the securities he has in this world, which is insecure. Abraham lives a life in a culture where laws and authorities and enforcement has not come in to structure society and to suppress our sinful and evil inclinations. And so he must leave his family, his land, his community, where he was provided security and enter into an insecure world following God. In other words, it will be costly for Abraham to do what God is asking. But I think if you put in the scales what Abraham leaves behind and what he is given in God, he would say, as Paul says in the New Testament, Whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, meaningless, in order that I may gain Christ. I think this is Abraham's thought as he, as he leaves. He says, if this is truly the God of heavens and earth, what he gives me, what he has promised me, is far greater than anything I leave behind. And in the scales of his decision, I think we could fairly say that what he is receiving is free in spite of it having a cost. Now this text, however, doesn't tell us it doesn't explain to us how God is going to solve the problem. It just lets us in on the beginning. It's going to come through one man who will bless all families. And he's called away from his land. But it doesn't exactly tell us how he's going to solve the problem of sinful humanity living with a holy God. To see that, we must turn to Genesis 15, just a few pages over in your Bible. 
And in Genesis 15, there is a very strange, for modern years, ritual. For context, Abram is concerned that God has not yet given him the heir that he has promised. He is going to make him a great nation. He is giving him sons and grandsons that number more than the stars in the heaven nor the sand on the seashore, but he has yet to have a son. And Abraham, in a place of doubt and concern, brings it to the Lord. And here's what happens. We'll pick up in verse 7 of Genesis 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he, speaking of Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, the, he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each of them half against each other. So he splits them in half and then lays them one half there and one half there. So he lays them half against each other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now the purpose of this ritual, just to give you guys some insight before we move on, is that in splitting these animals in half and in preparing to make a covenant, Abram is essentially preparing to walk between the halves of the animals that he has split. And in doing so, he is performing a ritual that makes this promise. If I do not hold up my end of the bargain, you do to me as I have done to these animals. Split me in half. Kill me, cut me in half, spill my entrails, all of that, all the gruesome and gory stuff that goes with it. He is saying to God, if I fail to fulfill my end of the bargain, you do to me what, you, what I do to the animals. In effect, he is saying, he is making a bet on his life. He is putting his life on the line. But, what actually happens in this text? Genesis 15, verses 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Not Abram, but a fire pot and a torch passed between them. Not Abraham, in other words, but God passes between the animals. And in doing so, he lets us in a little bit on a secret of how he is going to solve the problem of his holiness and human sin. And if we have the ears to hear it, we can also hear this echo from passages preceding Genesis 15, and we can see it projecting out in front of Genesis 15. Let me just give you a few examples, since it would be too many to run through all of them. But one of them, after cursing the devil, the enemy, in Genesis 3.15. So the enemy deceives Adam and Eve, they sin, sin enters the world, and after uh, after God has confronted the sin, he levels a curse at the devil, the serpent, at man, and at woman. And in cursing the devil, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. While we aren't given a full picture here, this verse, often called the Proto-Evangelion, or the Proto-First Evangelion Gospel, the first telling of the Gospel, lets us know this, that there is coming one from woman who will defeat the serpent, crush his head, yet he also will be hurt. His heel will be bruised. And so God is letting us in on a secret from the very beginning, and he fills it out a little bit more in succeeding chapters. 
In fact, as several chapters later, as God judges human sin in a flood, when the waters of judgment recede, in Genesis 9, verses 12 through 16, we read this. And God said this, The sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature is, uh, that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. I sh it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become the flood that destroys all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the earth. Notice that God's sign for this promise is a bow. Now, for us today, we recognize that. In fact, if it rains like it's supposed to by 11 o'clock, when the sun comes out, you will see one. And we all have a context because we have seen them many times before. And so we go, a bow, of course, a rainbow. But for Noah, who had never seen a rainbow, he has only one thought in his mind when God says, I have set a bow in the heavens. And it's not a pretty symbol that we put on child's things. It's not a symbol of unorthodox sexuality. It's not a symbol of diversity. Rather, it is this. A bow to Noah was nothing but an instrument of war. A bow as in a bow and arrow. God has placed his weapon of judgment in the sky. Now for each of us, we know because we've seen them, that bow, every time it rains, we see the weapon of judgment in the sky, and yet it is not pointed at us. It is taut, it is bent, it is ready to spring an arrow, and yet where would that arrow fly? Have you let go of the string? Straight to the heart of heaven. From the very beginning, God is telling us in Genesis 3.15 that someone will come, and though he will win, he will be hurt. And God then says in Genesis 9, and my bow of judgment is pointed up at me before it is pointed again down where we live. And so we start to see what is taking place here. We start to see that God's plan involves putting himself on the line taking upon himself the legal punishment of covenant violation. That's what he's doing, walking through the split-in-half animals. He's saying, it will not be Abram who pays if this covenant is not fulfilled. It will be me who pays in order to fulfill it. We could say, Abram is brought into relationship with God by God's willingness to sacrifice himself in order to save and sustain Abraham. Abraham is brought into relationship with God by God's willingness to sacrifice himself to save and sustain Abraham. The smoking pot through the middle of the divided carcasses is a sign that that would happen. That the penalty of human sin and the consequences of covenant violation would fall not on him, but on God. We've already sung about this message. It is truly amazing grace. One that rightly understood is difficult to fathom. And even still, there is more to understand in the covenant between God and Abraham. You see, we must ask the question, what does this covenant entail about Abraham's relationship to the rest of the world? Like I said, my job today is to connect the covenant of Abraham to the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is one that positions us towards the rest of the world. So what does the covenant of Abraham say about that? Well, we get this unpacked. In Genesis 17 and 18, 
We'll look at just three verses here. Genesis 17, 1 and 2, and Genesis 18, 19. And we see in these verses that God's plan involves the necessity to walk before him. Look at this, Genesis 17, 1 and 2. Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and that I may multiply you greatly. Genesis 18 and 19 unpacks this a little bit further, saying, For I have chosen him, speaking of Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. That promise referring to the covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So to keep the way of the Lord, that is to live how God wants us to live, to live how we were designed to. Another way of saying this is that in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they took of the forbidden fruit, they were taking from a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the outstretched hand to pull the fruit from the tree was the desire to decide for myself what is right and wrong, what is righteousness and what is wicked what is good and what is evil, and to live how I want. And God's covenant with Abraham is this. Reject, refuse, resist that temptation. Walk how I walk. Live how I designed you to live. Keep a character that is in line with my character, for you are my image bearers. I created you to look like me. And so God calls Abraham to reject the impulse and to rely on God's instructions for how he should live. This is built out further with the phrase that comes up here, justice and righteousness, which is the Old Testament way of describing social ethics. So it's not just a personal thing I do in my heart, but God is describing here how we live before other people. He is saying, live before them righteously in keeping with my commands, and justly, meaning that good is done to those who deserve good, and evil is punished. That is the Old Testament definition of justice, that good is done to those who live righteously, if they are taken advantage of, they are repaid, and evil is punished. And God says, walk in that way. Why? Abraham is called to live or to walk in justice and righteousness primarily because it then displays God's good character to creation. It then displays God's good character to all of us that we are witnesses to who God is because we are witnesses towards how each of us lives. And if I've done my job well, then the picture of the Great Commission and the Covenant of Abraham should be coming together. You should be seeing it and thinking in your mind, this, friends, is us. That we are called by God, we are saved to be sent. Unlike Abraham, though, we aren't sent first and foremost to a place, but to a mission. We are called, saved to be sent, that we might make disciples. Not of ourselves, but of Christ Jesus. We are called to live or to walk in righteousness and justice. We are called to live rightly and to pursue justice, to honor God, yes, but also to advocate for God's goodness amongst creation. And we are bought, brought into a relationship with God by God's willing sacrifice of himself in order to save and to, to sustain. And therefore, we can sacrifice 
in the pursuit of making disciples. God has sacrificed in pursuing us. We can sacrifice in pursuing others. And in each of these things, we see the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I advocate to be at church as often as you can. Because we tend to struggle with doubt and frustration and concern when we, like Abraham, fail to see in our moment and with our limited view how God is being faithful and solving the problem of human sin today. But every time we gather, every time we gather, we see God's faithfulness to the covenant of Abraham. Because Abraham may have married a barren woman, and yet this room is full of her children. Sarah may have been old, borderline on ancient, before Isaac was born, and yet her offspring proliferate our chairs. In every church service at a true church, from the inception of the church in Acts chapter 1 until today, is a proclamation of God's faithfulness to that covenant. We exist on mission as well in order to pursue and remain faithful to that covenant. The mission we are on today is the same mission God has had since the beginning, since the call of Abraham. Now you may wonder what your role in that is or what the effectiveness of it is. Well, you are surrounded by stories of mission success. And you are surrounded by ordinary people, moms, dads, friends, uncles, siblings, aunts, cousins, co-workers, co-eds, employees, employers. You are surrounded by ordinary people who are all in that chair because somebody took that mission seriously. makes me wonder who could be in these chairs in future generations because we, today, take this mission seriously. Because we, today, don't let our faith be something internal and merely silent inside of us, but we go, I was saved to be sent. Christ sacrificed himself on a Roman crucifix. I might be able to sacrifice in pursuit of others. I'm going to turn it now to praying for us, but I want to give you uh, two ways, well, two things that you can do in order to pursue this mission. I understand, and I have sat in those chairs, if you hear this call to mission and you feel burdened or weighty or anxious or nervous about it, let me give you these two things. Because as much as our words can be helpful, as Kenyon explained to us this morning, our words to each other can be good and helpful, and the mission must go forth across that boundary but our words to our Father and to the King of creation are also as helpful. So in the back, you can grab, there's a table next to the care table back there. There's also at the welcome table with Zach, these booklets. They are a 30-day devotional that walk you through how to pray for one person in your life who you would like to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who you would like to become a disciple of Christ, have a reconciled relationship between them and their God, in whose image they were made. And with that, there's this bookmark that'll lead you through the same passages in this little book. But the one difference with this, some of them are in the chairs in front of you. If there's not one in the chair in front of you, Zach will have these as well. Is you can actually write the name of the person you're going to pray for on this, tear off the section, put it in our offering basket or in our offering box in the back, or give it to Zach. 
and we as a church staff will partner with you for 30 days in praying for that name so that we can know. Now, I'm not promising that anything will happen at the end of 30 days, but here's what I am promising. Nothing happens if we don't move. The great theologian Wayne Gretzky once said, you miss every shot you don't take. (laughs) So here we are, friends. Are we ready to go on mission? Are we saved to be sent? And sent to our friends, to our family, to our neighborhood, to our classrooms, to our places of work, that others might come to know the name of our holy, good, gracious God through our merciful and wonderful Savior. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I am amazed that you do not turn away humanity, uh, but rather that you save us and save us into your plan, that we might be messengers of the gospel, that we might take the good news of our King and Savior to others. Father, we often feel weak and frail, not having the words to speak or the thoughts to defend the faith. And maybe we feel anxious and nervous about that, but we know that you give us the words. We know that the wisdom of God is wiser than the foolishness of man. And we know that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. Lord, we might be foolish and we might be weak, but we know you, wise and good, powerful God, can use us. So would you do that? this year as we think about your mission? And would these chairs and chairs in the churches across Tucson be populated by people because disciples make disciples who make disciples? Father, we thank you for all these things. We pray them in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.